This season of Smashing the Ceiling is brought to you by the Skylark Collective. Skylark is a new London-based network for women in podcasting, and this year we'll be hosting the inaugural International Women's Podcast Awards at the Albright in London. The collective exists to raise the voices of women in podcasting, both behind the mic and behind the scenes, and to showcase the work of women out there producing incredible audio moments through the medium of podcasting. So if you've got your own podcast or you're thinking of starting one, Head to our website at skylarkcollective.co.uk for more information or follow us on socials at the Skylark Collective. Now, on with the show. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. On this podcast, we love to showcase the lives of women who have achieved amazing things in their careers, those who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who've just had a really interesting life. If you're looking for inspiration for your career, if you feel a little stuck or bored with what you're doing right now, or if you're in search of the road less travelled job-wise, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I sit down with one woman to dig a little deeper into the how of it all. How did they get where they are? How did they pick themselves up when things didn't go right? And how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. And today is the start of season three. We have been on a very long hiatus since season two, as I moved house again, contemplated what I was doing with my life again. And well, there was a global pandemic. Who would have thought that was going to happen? I was furloughed for a while last year and had a long time then to think about where I wanted to take the podcast and my career. And since we last spoke, I have founded a new business, the Skylark Collective, to champion women in podcasting. But if I've got a podcasting focused business, I also need a podcast, right? And I'm so fortunate to have had such lovely feedback about our previous guests and the stories we've told here on Smashing the Ceiling that I just felt there's a lot of life in this show. A lot of podcasts don't continue after one or two seasons. They call it pod fade, apparently, but that is not us. We're going to be bringing you the stories of more amazing women over the next few months, and I cannot wait. My first guest this season is Veronica Bolton-Smith, who, spoiler alert, is a dear friend and a total inspiration. Ronnie is a powerhouse and her work has been so varied and interesting that I can't wait for you to hear her story. She started work in the House of Commons at the age of 22, working for various MPs, including Theresa May and John Burko, before heading out to Kenya to become the managing director of a company of 300 people at the age of 25. She has subsequently worked in both the public and private sectors and has huge experience in international development, investment and renewable energy, as well as sitting on the board of Akojo Marketplace, which is a fantastic fashion and homewares company. Most of all, she is fabulous fun and really knows how to tell a story. Ronnie is also a wonderful singer, but I couldn't quite work that into the podcast recording this time around. Next time. I hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did. I was born in Fulham and uh, to my parents, uh, Marie and George, who had moved from East Africa to London in the late 70s. Um, both of them come from East Africa. My dad is from Tanzania. My mum's from Uganda. He moved across to the UK first and then my mum followed. Yeah, I, I guess it was just a huge change for them because A, they weren't prepared for the weather. So my mum had like a bunch of summer dresses and flip-flops. Um, actually, I shouldn't say flip-flops. She'll kill me for saying that. But she's very, you know, she loves to wear lovely high heels and things like that. I guess it was a case of a shock to the system for them. Um, a lot of learning to do as well about, you know, cultural differences and and the fact that Londoners tend not to say hello when they pass you in the street and all that kind of stuff. My interest in Africa and international development had started from quite a young age. And I think that was based on the fact that, you know, I had both of my parents sharing stories of what it was like growing up in Africa. And my mum left Uganda around the time of Idi Amin. Uh, it was quite, it's getting fairly dangerous. Um, and so um, she she went to Kenya, actually, um, to go and stay with my auntie who was living in Nairobi. Um Equally, at that time, um, my dad was in Tanzania. He just finished university. It was a very interesting time in in Tanzania's sort of history from from everything that I've read and understood from from him. You know the stories that he shared, 
um, around the fact that, um, you know, you had, uh, it was kind of the, the turning point for, um, of African politics, you know, Tanzania was seen as a very much a safe haven. So whilst my dad was at university, you know, he'd have Nkrumah passing by and he'd have, you know, the ANC were around and, you know, there was all this sort of like, Hope. I think that's the thing that comes out of the conversations that he 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 always shares with with us as a family is that at that time it was quite a hopeful place to be. And there's that phrase that Harold Wilson, Prime Minister of the um, United Kingdom at the time, said, which is, you know, the wind of change is blowing in Africa um, because you know things were were starting to move from um, colonial rule to to national rule, and so they they met and um, you know then they started courting as I'm told um but to the rest of us just yeah dating um and and that's how they met in, in Kenya and they had many years in Kenya prior to moving to the UK um and from there that's when uh, my dad got this opportunity with for a job in the UK so so those are the stories that we were kind of always told as growing up you know Africa has so much potential there's so much going for it it just needs a voice it needs it needs someone to present it as a credible sort of investment destination some of your listeners may remember in the 80s I, I always remember at school this focus on band-aid and do they know it's Christmas um you know on the radio and I think if if one listens to those lyrics it's it's <laughs> fairly insulting actually because it says things like um and don't get me wrong, I'll sing along at Christmas with a glass of Baileys. But with your amazing voice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. But if you listen to the lyrics, it doesn't make any sense. Um, because it says, um, no, where no rain or rivers flow. Uh, let's get that straight. It's got the river Nile, the largest river in the world. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, essentially, it says there's nothing grows. Do they even know it's Christmas? You know, that kind of stuff. And it's a little bit condescending. But I, I'm sure at the time there were good intentions and it raised a lot of money and awareness. But it's that sort of subliminal message that's shared that, you know, oh, that poor sort of, you know, continent that has nothing going for it and there's, there's war there's pestilence there's violence you know and you know what can come from that you know just it will just self-perpetuates and I and I think that's the kind of stuff that's the messaging that I always used to have in the 80s and yet in my mind I was like that's not what I know I know it to be a very different place and we were very lucky as a family because um, unlike lots of the kids in school I was traveling from the age of six months so I mean you know we were flying back and forth to Africa, back to the UK. But it did open my eyes to the fact that, you know, actually, yes, there's issue, you know, yes, there are issues. Yes, there is um, famine. And, and yes, people don't have, you know, 10 million pounds in their back pocket. They live on the breadline, but they always smile. And that's the thing. I think if anyone's traveled on the continent, they'll know that you tend to find people have this real peace with themselves and they're generally fairly happy people. Um, and so, yeah, when you kind of juxtapose that with a life in the UK where it's about, you know, material things most of the time and, you know, there's focus on, um, you know, trying to almost, you know, you follow a path and, and, you and you know, you go to school, you go to university, you, you know, you get your degree, you find a job and that kind of path is almost chosen for you if you decide that's what you want. One of the things that always sort of stuck out in my mind when I was kind of traveling back and forth between Africa and the UK is the fact that kids and, and you know, even my parents, when they were at school, um, they studied the Oxford and Cambridge um, papers. So the equivalent education system was 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 right there. And um, but unfortunately, the opportunities weren't always there for people on the continent the same way they are here in the UK. Um, and I always felt that that was kind of an injustice. And I guess I've always had that kind of rebellion. This, I, guess, I call it quite rebellion because, um, you know, I never quite until quite recently actually knew how to channel that. But I think my once I've once I had the chance to identify, you know, my my values, my passions, the things that drive me, it has always been rooted back into ensuring that Africa has a voice and ensuring that. It's seen as a credible investment destination and to share those opportunities with the world. And, you know, I have I think my career to date has has reflected that. 
Um, I've I've never steered from Africa. I've tried to make sure that that's always front and centre of everything that I've done. Just growing up in, in the UK education system, I found, you know, I was often the only black person in the school. I don't know if anyone recalls those videos that, you know, they had a video room in most of these schools, didn't they? And you'd go Huge and watch TV education. on a big trolley. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Yes, oh my God, exactly. Back in the day. Yeah. And someone always had the job of like being the person to switch on the <laughs> the VHS. Yeah. Um, and I'm almost certain that's because the teacher didn't know what the freak to do. But um, <laughs> I think um, when I remember they used to switch the lights off and it would be a bit of a, you know, like a cinema kind of room. We'd all be sitting there and we'd be watching one, you know, education, ed- educational video. Um, I remember there was one called Geordie Racer and it was about this young boy with a pigeon. With a pigeon. Oh, my God, I remember yeah, that. <laughs> exactly. Like, what, <laughs> what did I learn from that? I don't like pigeons. And, and maybe that's where it came from. Anyone in their 30s or early 40s who was at school in the kind of late 80s and early 90s probably remembers Geordie Racer, I think. For those outside the UK, I think that is a very specific niche British reference, to be quite honest. But, <laughs> but anyway, really what the education, the learnings... Um, I don't know. I didn't get anything from that. But anyhow, they used to have a break in between in these educational videos that we'd sit in this dark room watching. And it would often be of a black child sitting in kind of a dusty area um, with flies around it, uh, around the child and um, generally um, looking quite thin and, and upset and it would then have this serious message about, you know, please give um, to this such and such charity um, to make sure that, uh, you know, this child has access to clean water or whatever the message might have been. And I always remember that being a, I would cringe and really want to hide myself. And despite the fact that it was a dark room, you know, I think people could still see where I was sat and the kids would always turn around and look at me and I'd be like, that ain't me like I'm not the kid on the screen and that's I don't know that person and you know why are you linking that child to me I don't understand because we're black like it just seems so ridiculous um and I think that kind of and that quiet rebellion that's where it all started really there and up to that point I think my (laughs) I'd gone through a phase and I don't know if anyone else feels this way of like what could I be? What could I do? You know, when you're sort of choosing your GCSEs and, you know, where would that lead? And I had, I don't know what came over me, but I decided that I wanted to become a volcanologist. <laughs> and if anyone knows me, A, I don't like kind of camping because um, I just don't cope very well with camping or sleeping bags or any of those sort of nighttime insects. How on earth could I have become a volcanologist? Because A, you're literally staring down, you know, molten lava. <laughs> um, but I think it was the excitement of the of that role. And I, yeah, anyway, I was 14, who knew, who knew what was going through my mind. But um, I had a very clear sort of intention that I wanted to study geography. And I really enjoyed geography. Um, and so I think from sort of one of the, classes that we did we talked about volcanology and I was like wow this looks so cool and it's you know it's dangerous and it's exciting and you know you really get to get a sense of like when it's when when it might be happening and you can inform governments and you can inform people to be safe so I think that kind of you know that looking after people and that desire to sort of warn people of of danger that's always been in me as well so perhaps that's where it was rooted I went on this summer holiday to Nairobi and I was with my mum in the supermarket we're sort of like you know going down the aisles whatever and um, you know you often see like cornflakes and blah 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 down the aisle but it didn't ever click that 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 was made in the UK and it was being sold in Kenya at an inflated price until my mum picked up uh, I remember it was a jar of Kenko and she just said she was just sort of shaking her head and and then she put it back and I was like what mum do you not want it like you like coffee and she's like do you realize this is called Kenko Kenya coffee so the Kenya beans are taken from Kenya processed in the UK and sent back to Kenya and sold at seven pounds a jar and I was like hey what why would they even allow that to come in like what I don't understand like if they've got coffee why don't they just make coffee and call it Kenya coffee and sell it to themselves for 15p or whatever um and then she's like yeah because they don't have the processing plants and so that's why it's got to go out to come back in and I was like so 
And then she talked to me about the duty and et cetera, et cetera. So I was just like, that is so ridiculous. And I remember that's the point at which I thought, actually, that's wrong. And I, you know, I, you know, I'm not saying I don't have Kenko in my cupboard because I do, <laughs> but it's it that's where I was a bit like, well, why isn't why doesn't the shelf reflect also the local stuff too? Um, and so that's where it started, actually. At 14 in that supermarket, I was like, I'm gonna do something about this. And I'm going to make sure that whatever I do with my job, my career, is to try to highlight the fact that actually the potential for the continent to make and manufacture their own stuff is there. So you did politics and international relations at uni. Um, did you, you obviously had a strong kind of inclination that that was going to be the path you were tracking down. And then you went off to work in Westminster in the Houses of Parliament for your first job, which I think is freaking cool and also <laughs> definitely you know we often talk on this podcast about careers that look difficult to get into and you know working in parliament for an MP you know being at the kind of forefront of politics for people that are interested in it is one of those jobs that seems really hard to get into how did you track down that road Ronnie and how did you kind of start with um getting into work you worked for John Burko initially and then subsequently Theresa May um how did you kind of get into that yeah, so, uh, yeah, I studied in uh, politics and international relations, as I say, because of that sort of backstory. And then um, I was really fortunate when I came to choosing my degree. I looked at universities based on the fact what what they provided with the degree so that some of them offered sort of one year placement in, I don't know, Spain, working with a local council. Some of them, you know, some universities and, and, and interestingly, at the time, I don't know if it's different now, but at the time I went to university, Oxford and Cambridge actually wasn't top in the politics um, kind of timetable, uh, sorry, uh, table. Um, the University of Hull was. Uh, amongst the top three I think and even it ranked very highly in Europe so for me I was like oh I've got to go there like I don't know where Hull is where is Hull I'm from London like where's Watford but um yeah so I studied there because the course there was there was there were two courses that took my interest one was called BPLS which was British Politics and Legislative Studies which was a four-year course I'm not gonna lie to someone on the outside that sounds really fucking dry Well, I didn't take that one. So, you know, not saying that, (laughs) but I didn't take that one. But that was three years in Hull and one year in Westminster. Right. And then there was my course, which was politics and international relations, which was far more suited to me. So much more glamorous. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But the funny thing was, um, it was predominantly um, male students. You know, I think there were in, in my cohort, I think there were probably about literally four or five girls out of how many students I mean certainly within my international relations group and um, politics and international relations there was probably about three or four girls out of how many 200 maybe students Crikey, maybe more right. than that that's insane yeah it was it was strange um but you know it kind of well a I've I've got three brothers so for me getting on with guys is not a problem I kind yeah, of get the humor and, and and that kind of stuff but um, it was very interesting being in in a group of of, of you know our, our tutorial groups and having that kind of discussion and you know little of me trying to sort of put my hand up and get my thoughts in there and bring a different perspective. Um, actually, it, it it did me well for for my career, but um, yeah. So the the course that I ended up taking was a three year course, and the head of my politics department, who also became my personal tutor, was um, Lord Norton of Louth who is a peer. He also um, was a teacher in politics. And so he headed up the department. And in my in my final year, um, you know, I had the opportunity to just chat to him about, you know, my next stage, my next step. And I uh, I said, look, I, I really want to go and work in the Houses of Parliament, because to me, I think that's the next natural step, having studied the theory, I want to see it in practice. Um, so I remember him saying, can't promise anything, but let's see, let's see if I, you know, I'll have some conversations and see whether there are any openings. And as it turned out, there were a couple and, um, myself and about six or seven other of my mates ended up working in the houses of parliament. And it was incredible. I mean, it was an amazing opportunity. Um, and I always look back on those years very fondly because a, you know, I was really at the heart of of decision making in the United Kingdom. Um, B, I woke up um, 
from home so and 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 we my family home is actually in Putney so I was quite lucky that I could get on a train from Putney to Waterloo 15 minutes and then just walk from Waterloo to Westminster every day and it was just always such an incredible feeling knowing that I was walking into this incredible establishment with such deep-rooted history. I think for those people that haven't visited the Houses of Parliament as well like the moment when you walk into that kind of grand atrium inside and Westminster Hall Westminster Hall yeah and so that's actually the original part of the parliamentary building because that's where the debates would happen in there in yeah it's so impressive and I went to visit I mean clearly I have never worked in politics and had nothing to do with (laughs) anything but um I've been just as a tourist and walking in there makes you feel like you are sitting in this realm of history and you know walking into the kind of seat of power for of thousands of years and or hundreds of years at least and I just found it so impressive and I wonder what it was like kind of walking in there every day and just feeling like this was your job yeah it, that I have to say the, the the early days it was always quite overwhelming actually um and also just the fact that you know I would my my the the office that I worked in over looked it was literally a um, couple of centimetres from Big Ben and um, you know you could just hear it chime and it would chime around the whole building and yeah I always felt very blessed and very lucky that I had that opportunity at that age you know that was my first well I, I say that was my first job I did have summer postings at UNICEF in Nairobi but that was my first proper job do you know what I mean and um and at the time when I was making the decision as to who to work with, well actually I didn't really make the decision it was kind of made for me but um, my interest, as you know, was international development. And at the time, uh, John Burko, who was a Conservative MP for Bucking at that time, was also uh, the minister, shadow minister for international development. And um, that's not to say that, uh, you know, I decided to work for a Conservative because that's the, the party I affiliated with. It was because of the opportunities that it represented working for a shadow MP, as opposed to um, the government of the day because then you'd have been working in a ministry and you'd have been lost in sort of just doing admin type work so in the end I decided actually the parliamentary process is what I want to understand let me work um, for the shadow minister. It's so interesting what did you do for John Burko and then subsequently for Theresa May like what did your sort of day-to-day role involve working for them Ronnie? A lot of it was research so um, at the time, um, John Burko was part of the International Development Select Committee. There's a lot about holding things accountable, holding holding the government of the day accountable. So you'd have to really go through, um, you know, the announcements that were made by certain departments. Mine, the one I focused on was the Department for International Development, which today is now called the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, FCDO. Um, and so you'd be looking at the statements that would come from that. You'd be looking at... Um, any visits that the minister would have been making um, to countries um, and the um, the commitments, um, the, the 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 bilateral agreements, perhaps between nations, so between the UK and say other foreign countries, developing countries, um, and then you would scrutinise that, and then you'd ask questions, you, you'd prepare a paper essentially for the MP to then uh, be a bit more informed when they go to the committee meeting. Um, and it's an opportunity for the dialogue to take place and, and to sort of just say, OK, have you looked at X, Y and Z? Um, so that was that was really interesting from the research side. You worked in what was DFID at the time, Department for International Development, for another sort of four or five years. And then and then you kind of transitioned from working within the kind of machinations of actual politics into the private sector and um, kind of investments and that kind of thing. And for anyone who is interested in your CV, it is expansive and impressive um, and includes obviously a period living in Kenya again as an adult and working over there. Um, What sort of drew you out of the kind of inner circle, I suppose, of the kind of policy development and making a change from the political aspect into more the kind of um, investment funding boots on the ground corporate side of things as well, Ronnie. Um, what is your sort of thinking behind how is best to affect change in those kind of um, situations and promoting the interests of African countries? Yeah, I great so question. fascinating because th- <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of two different ways of thinking about it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's 
kind of what's kept me going these all these years is that um, you know it's the ability to adapt and I think that's one of my strengths actually because having been in politics and let me be honest I didn't really enjoy my time um, working for specific MPs. Um, <laughs> we're, not gonna lie, we're not going to commit libel here. Oh. <laughs> no <laughs> but, um, I'm just saying from my point of indeed, view it was, a, yeah. it was an interesting time. Well, um, I can imagine and I think, you know, there's a lot in the news about treatment of employees of MPs, let's put it that way. And, you know, mm-hmm. not just from certain questionable MPs, but all over politics. And actually, that's a point of discussion, isn't it? Of like treatment of junior members of staff and those kind of working conditions in Westminster you know, and, and beyond. Oh, yeah. That That is it's definitely a, perhaps not a point of discussion for now, but like it, it's certainly a factor that I think is... Part two, perhaps. Yeah. Part two, perhaps. <laughs> I think certainly from my, from, from having worked in Parliament, I mean, yeah, the the expenses scandal came by the time I was leaving. And um, yeah, I think at the time I worked there, I had to work nine to five in the MP's office. And then from five to six, I used to travel to queue every day. From six to 11, I'd work in Marks and Spencers in queue because I, I didn't have enough money to sustain, you know, my living costs. So I used to have to work two jobs. I remember that. And it was really hard work and I was exhausted all of the time. And that's, you know, but I also wanted to maintain, you know, the the life of meeting up with friends and going out. So I was trying to do all of those things. Actually, it was ridiculous when I look back. Um, But I wouldn't have changed it because I learned a lot. And I think that gave me a lot of insight into what I if I ever became a manager, if I ever became a leader, if I ever became a boss, how I wouldn't treat my staff, what I would do to incentivize them and what how important it is to boost morale. And I think those are the things that I learned from my experiences in, the, in those early years. Um, your question around, you know, what made me move into sort of the private sector, I think it was rooted in the fact that, you know, I'd had the opportunity to work in the public sector. But what I found was that things happened very, very slowly. And you hear about bureaucracies. Um, From my point of view, things did move quite slowly um, and not fast enough. And and as I say, I draw back to this thing of I constantly travel back between Africa and the UK. So the conversations and the the PMQs and, you know, all of these things around international development, around making sure that Africa can... um, eradicate poverty by 2015 and I mean when I was at university that looked like a long way away but actually 2015 came and went and I was like poverty's still here so clearly these these mechanisms these dialogues are not working and so is it because we're talking a lot and doing very little and so I was lucky at that time to then come across Baroness Chalker and uh Baroness Chalker is a a really uh, formidable um, individual. She's an incredible woman. And she um, had started a consultancy. So background on her, she's a a Baroness, obviously. She was formerly Minister for um, ODA, which is the Overseas Development Agency and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. From the time that she spent working in the Conservative government, uh, working on Africa, you know, she decided actually she had such, she had a good way of working with African leaders. And so the offshoot was that she started a consultancy looking at how to shape trade and investment on the continent and how to strengthen ties, essentially, um, and how to create opportunities. She'd contacted me. Um, I think I was at that time I was probably sort of thinking about where do I want to move on to next? And it just all happened quite, you know, it was timely. Then it all came from there, really. Um, I then went for an interview and started working for her consultancy. And that was great um, because actually it was completely private sector focused. And, you know, she's got great, expansive African knowledge. um, And, you know, she was consulting for the World Bank. She was a non-executive director for Unilever. She was um, consulting for uh, Vodafone. You know, many companies at that many international companies were aware of, you know, the either they were already invested in Africa or they were thinking it's a new frontier. I need to get involved. So it was a great time to work there because actually my job kind of crossed over PR consultancy um, and also getting involved in sort of board meetings at these, at the, you know, really high level board level meetings or being privy to those sorts of. Um, dialogues with these sort of huge, huge FTSE 100 companies. Um, And so 
the exposure during those years was fantastic and really, really set me up quite well, actually, for getting to know um, many of the international um, companies that were were in Africa. Um, and I remember feeling that actually this is what I want to do because I felt that actually if you start the day saying I'm going to do X, Y, Z, you will finish having done X, Y, Z. There was no sort of let's have a conversation about a conversation about a conversation, which sometimes comes from working in the public sector. Um, you know, you, as a private company, working with private companies, things happen way faster. And there is a degree of sort of accountability and um, an urgency around let's get things done, let's do deals, let's, you know, let's move. There's, there's a, and also there's a, a great energy around that, which I enjoy. So for me, it was, a, it was a really fantastic move. And I stayed there for a few years, actually, working with Baroness Chalk and, you know, and then I had the opportunity to move out to Africa after that. Um, and um, I was out there heading up a, a company, actually, of about 300 people at that time. So casual, so casual. I was just <laughs> heading up a company of 300 people. This is what I love about yes. you, Ronnie, is you're so <laughs> understated. And as a friend of yours, you just drop all, you just drop these bombs in where you're just like, oh, my God, wow. She just, like, casually pen- went to Kenya and was in boss of 300 people. Mega. Sorry, Yeah. No, it was, it was like, I mean... Yeah, I don't. I, I'm conscious of the time because I, you know me, I could chat for for England, but or Africa. Um, yeah, I moved up to Nairobi, and that was down to the fact that you know I kind of intuitively felt at that time that actually I have done all this fantastic Africa work. I've got this experience, but I haven't actually lived there. Do you know what I mean? I've gone there for holidays. I've been there for six weeks at, t- at a time. Um, I've spent time with family but I've never actually lived there. And so my dad and my mum had decided to move back to Africa, um, you know, early to late 90s, early 2000s. And I stayed in the UK with my brother, one of the brothers that follows me and my other two younger brothers moved to Africa, to Kenya with my parents. And, um, you know, I always look back at that time thinking, gosh, you know, we kind of, the family was kind of a little bit almost, you know, we were over, different we were in different continents you know it was hard um and you know at the time it was I remember missing everyone so much but you know there was always the opportunity to go out there on holidays and see people but you know you that was that was that was yeah it wasn't the same it was it was quite a tough time kind of felt like gosh you know there was this yearning that I was like I'm missing out like I want to know I want to be there I want to like experience all of that and how did you find working in Kenya when you got over there versus working in England and did you find it a different working environment did you feel that you were given more opportunity the same less like how did that kind of go as your career developed Ronnie because I mean I sort of think of you as like an absolute boss but I'd be kind of interested to hear the like comparison I guess of having been in these you know seats of power and and really with working with really excuse me big people in the UK like what was the kind of compare and contrast I guess of moving out to Nairobi for your work it was it was a big learning experience um firstly it was new culture now Kenya is not my um obviously we have a home there and we've spent a lot of time in Kenya but it's not where my cousins are from it's not where my uncles and aunts are from so it was there was the learning around that you know trying to sort of fit in not having any friends really there because I didn't I didn't spend any time beyond sort of six weeks summer holidays so that was hard um and then there was also leading this company of 300 people in a factory and, um, you know, I'd gone from being a project manager in my prior role to then becoming an MD. And that was a huge jump. And, you know, I wasn't I'm always up for a challenge, but that was a particularly tough one because a, I had to be aware of things like HR and I had to be aware of the finances and the profit and loss accounts, the revenues, um, how to drive business in times of, you know, a lull. So it was, there was so much that I picked up there and it was an incredible experience for someone of my age. You know, I was mid twenties by that point. Wow. Um, So that was, yeah, no other, I don't, you know, from my peer group, I always remember them saying, goodness me, you know, this is amazing. Like this is an incredible opportunity. And it really was, I embraced it, but it was, you know, being thrown at the deep end. Um, And there were always the worries of what if I make a mistake? What if I do something wrong? Um, and just for for the awareness, the the company was actually my dad's. So he had asked me to go out to the to Kenya and run his main business whilst he was setting up elsewhere. 
Um, and so there was because it's a family business, you know, for me, it was all around um, making my dad proud. And I think that's hopefully others can relate to that of that, you know, you don't want to mess up a family business. You want to make sure that you're kind of bringing some, something new to it. And I was really lucky because I think the stuff that I'd learned through the years um, and having worked with various international companies, I then had, you know, I was able to knock on doors in Nairobi of some of these companies and say, OK, I've worked with you in London. I want to work with you here. I, I found it really hard to um, kind of get my head around the fact that, you know, I'd been so used and so programmed to, to send emails to people within the workplace. Um, even when you're sitting next to someone, you kind of send them an email, which actually, when you say it out loud, is so ludicrous. Um, <laughs> your email could be like, could you send me that document by 3 p.m.? Uh, you could easily just sort of turn to your neighbor and say, yeah, would you mind sending me that document? But it's just like this weird culture uh, over here that, you know, everything must be done by email and paper trail accountability, yada, yada, yada. But actually out there in Africa, it doesn't fly. And it if you want to, I'm talking about East Africa because that's where I spent majority of my time. But if you want to get stuff done, you need to see people. You need to get yourself in a car, to a meeting and go and face people because they like that. They like that element of relationship building. They like the fact that you're actually taking the time to nurture that relationship and see them and understand what's going on. So those experiences that lent, lent themselves well to me later down my career where, you know, I was kind of advising companies on how best to approach investment practices, how to approach individuals, um, how to understand um the the complexities around tribal um, conflicts or issues that may impact business decisions. Be aware of the history um, of the country that you want to invest in, because that often informs the reason why business is done in specific ways. And I think there's a much bigger picture to be aware of than just let's go to do business with this person um, because it looks right. And how do you think that kind of you know, you were leading a company there in, in Kenya and now you're a COO. How do you think that's kind of shaped you as a leader? Like, do you, has all of that fed into your style? You know, we talked a little bit about earlier on about you learning how to, how you didn't want to treat people through the way you'd been treated yourself. Like, do you think that um, just kind of appreciating all those different elements has fed into your own leadership style and the way that you run yourself now as a COO? Yeah, I, I would actually. I'd say all of that has has led to to the person that I am today. And I think, unfortunately, you know, it's, you know, I think when you're going through your 20s, when you've left university, there's this sort of not quite not being quite sure of yourself. Certainly, that's how I, I felt. And you're in a room and, I, you know, often I'd be in rooms with like chairman of huge company, huge FTSE 100 companies or, you know, a member of, you know, the royal family or something. And you just sort of say, well, what am I doing here? You get that imposter syndrome thing of like, should I say something or would it sound stupid? And that that's always plagued me, actually, because I know what I'm saying. And often what I'm told by my friends and colleagues is that actually what you just said then was really good. But, you know, there's a doubt in your mind and it's taken a long time to try and get to the point where um, I'm given the opportunity to speak. I'm given the opportunity to share my views because nine times out of 10, it's because it comes from experiences. It's because it's come from the learnings. And also it's because it comes from the fact that I'm African at the end of the day. And so I do get it. I do understand. You know, I've got parents who are both massive entrepreneurs I come from a family of, you know, entrepreneurs and um, and really well well respected um, individuals within the family as well. Some in government, some in politics, some in business. You know, so I've had a really good grounding, um, and the stories that they've they've shared with me, they've imparted on me, um, that influence and and affect the way that I work with people and the the knowledge that I have to share. And I, I have to be honest, over the years, it's always Sometimes that can come, I think, sometimes that can come across to people as, you know, a threat because, you know, perhaps they see that I've had such experiences and I've had, I really come from a place of trying to do something. And I think I'm a change maker in myself. I really feel that, you know, ultimately that's what I was put on this earth to do is to change the perception around what, you know, Africa really is. And I've often felt that, you know, that's been stagnated in some ways, Um and it's a shame because I think there's a lot that one can 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 get from that um, if it's nurtured correctly, if it's if it's 
supported. Um, and in my current role now as COO, um, yeah, I, I definitely have that opportunity to still work with private sector companies. Um, but yeah, I think your your question is a really good one. Um, and I think as I've gotten older, I've been at more ease with the fact that, yeah, I have these strengths and they shouldn't be kept down. They shouldn't be stagnated. Um, you know, I've got I've got a credible story to share and I've got, you know, some insights that perhaps others wouldn't have had the opportunity to have. And as you say, you know, having the chance to be an MD of a company of 300 people and having the chance to fly back and forth to Africa and the UK and all those things that have shaped me, you know, that's that's the unique selling point. And that's, I think, the thing that ultimately why I've had these really strong relationships for the last 17 years with a lot of from the business community because I've kept in touch with them and you know we've had um you know we've kind of gone through several years of change you know so that and and, and that's been wonderful so yeah um I think it's not it's a work in progress ultimately um and I think I'm kind of getting to the point now where you know I do feel that um it's it's okay for me to 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 speak out and say things and to 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 find other change makers out there. You've been quite open about the fact that you know your family are very entrepreneurial and successful themselves in in Africa. What advice would you give to somebody who isn't from within that world but wanted to get into it? So if there's a young woman who thinks Africa is exciting, I really want to be involved in that. I see the future. I see the potential. You know, a vision perhaps aligned with yours that you see the future of business there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, look, I mean, I think the first thing is to say, do your homework. You know, it's it's like anything. If you want to get involved in something, it's important to understand the the, the sector perhaps that you're interested in or to understand the country that you're interested in. Uh, you know, there's 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 some bit a bit of research that's required. So there's that get in touch second, you know, do, do feel free to reach out to me because, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to sort of talk through ideas and um, your interests, etc. Um, And I think three, you've got to, I think it's great to have an interest and it's really good that, you know, if someone can see the potential of the continent, but just be aware that, you know, it's about what aligns well with what you're looking for. So West Africa is very different to East Africa, is very different to South Africa, is extremely different to North Africa. It's a it's a continent of, I think in Sub-Saharan Africa, 52 countries. The the thing is, Africa is huge. So it you know, and it it's culturally it's huge. Business-wise, you know, the opportunities are huge. Um there's as not there's not a one size fits all. So if you if you're in East Africa, there's complexities around which country there. In West Africa, the same thing. So I think you need to understand the market development. You need to understand the, the individuals. And it's always I think a piece of advice that I, I always encourage any investor is to seek a local partner because ultimately they will guide you into knowing exactly you know the pitfalls or the things the opportunities that you may not be aware of yourself one needs to look at the capital flows as well so where's capital flowing into where's the in and that usually is where the massive interest is and at the minute we're seeing a huge flow into um entrepreneurs specifically in the technology sector um because um you'll hear this term leapfrogging africa has leapfrogged um in the sense that um they didn't actually landlines were were not a thing in Africa. They just jumped straight to mobile phones. And the the fact that most people have mobiles is a huge thing. And I think business has recognized that actually that's the platform that they need to employ to sort of get their products out there. And so there's a lot of technology around fintech um, in Africa. There's mobile um, health as well. Agritech is another one. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just vast. It's, it's a vast area and there's a lot of interest, particularly from the US market into Africa, I think around that. So yeah, it's amazing. So Ronnie, I know you sit on um, the board of a fashion company as well, and uh, which is awesome. Um, can you just talk to us a little bit about getting onto boards and about that company and about kind of women in board roles and what you think that's contributed to your career as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I am um, glad you've mentioned them. I sit on the board of a company called Okojo Market, 
So a Kojo market, some of you may have noticed their products in the likes of Vogue, Harper's, Bazaar. I mean, they're, they're featured in most of the um, well-known sort of magazine publications. Essentially, it's a platform, an online platform that um, gives opportunities for those in the creative industries in Africa. So that's whether you're a jewellery maker, homeware um, developer, um, you're into the arts, um, jewelries and accessories all of those sorts of things, um, they identify those, those artisans cool. and they identify who those, um, the, the people that could, you know, potentially sell on the platform. They give advice around, you know, how to enter the markets uh, mm, abroad. I'm definitely going to be going to check them out. <laughs> yes, please do. They are fantastic. And they're actually, yeah, I, I'm sure they wouldn't mind me saying that they're going through fundraising. So if you, anyone's okay. interested, cool. um, do get in touch. Um, but I, I really, really respect them. I, I, I was honoured that they, they came to me and asked if I would join um, the, the advisory board, which of course I was like, I jumped at. Because you yourself, fashion queen, incidentally, there is no, this is a podcast. So for the benefit of the podcast, Ronnie is, has fantastic fashion sense and is so well dressed as well. Oh God, no. <laughs> I I never I I don't think that way I always think you know everyone else looks so cool and I'm just like chucking on whatever but that's a really kind to say thank you um but yeah I've always had a, a love of particularly homeware stuff um and I love sort of um you know the batiks as well and I love the African prints ultimately because they're really quite unusual and quite different and um I think they really add you know they jazz up uh, an environment actually so for me this is this is a fantastic platform and also there's a huge element to the Kojo market business around sustainability and ethical um trading as well so that sits well with me and um they support women entrepreneurs as well so that's also fantastic um going back to your point about getting on boards and women in on boards i absolutely agree i think there's I mean, there's all sorts of surveys that have come out recently that sort of identify the fact that, you know, there aren't enough women on boards. Um, there are not enough ethnic minorities on boards. Um, and so, you know, how can that be addressed? And um, I I was lucky because, you know, I was approached for this particular role. Um, but I know that it's not as easy for, for many people to get um, access to this kind of information. And I think it's around trying to identify have you got something that you can provide that board that, you know, they couldn't get in-house? So essentially what, and, and a lot of boards often want someone just to bring a fresh perspective. Um, and so I think it's about looking at your CV and your career to date and having a look at the fact that, okay, I've, I don't know, let's say, for example, I've had a career, you've had a career in marketing um, and PR. So can you bring that as an element of, um, you know, development for that company um, and they'll be seeking your expertise really just to sort of share what could be done differently what could be employed the sort of strategies that they need to look at uh, and and I think that's what boards tend to look at um, the advice I remember hearing many years ago was that if you are interested in that often you know don't look straight for the FTSE 100 companies because you know that is that's 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 a work you know you've got to work your way up that's a work in progress yeah it is yeah I think it's important to look at sort of charities NGOs share your time because often they need your time maybe four board meetings a year so it's just like um you know you're it's a supporting role really there's also actually a really good resource for those that don't know called Women on Boards. Okay. So it's a really good platform, actually. I think you you pay a, a membership fee, but it gives you access to um, board positions. And they, they range from, you know, um, public sector, charities, NGOs, and those kind, kind of companies. I mentioned those kind of FTSE 100 companies as well. So you know, it's an opportunity if you think you're ready. And I think they do a lot of training as well. They help sort of get you to a board level position so that when you're when you're applying, you are actually ready to go for that role. So I, I would encourage people to look at things like that and just sort of even just uh, approaching companies that you admire, you know, right to their HR department or right to um, look at the, the people that sit on the board and, and try and find a way to reach out to them. Mm, that's really good advice, actually. Yeah, give reasons as to why you think that you can help them, you know. Um, and I think that's that's just something that I think a friend of mine once said to me, you know, 
when I was feeling a bit uh, stuck uh, around things, she said, you know, you've got to create space. And I love that because that could mean things to different people. It could mean feng shui. It could mean, um, you know, chucking out old stuff. Or, But for me, what that meant was you've got to create your own space. You've got to create your own space because actually what that means is you've got people that you know or a community that you can build or people that you admire. And through that, you can... Um, you know, you've got another channel, another outlet to share your your vocations, your your interests, your passions, your values, and so that definitely the the, the position that I have for, with the Kojo Market definitely gives me that because I feel that actually I've learned so much with them. But I've also I feel maybe they'll tell me differently. Um, I've contributed to to some of the things that they're doing. So um, yeah, I think that's that's something that I think is really important as well. Um, you need to have more strings to your bow than just your day job. Definitely. And I think that concept of holding your space as well and, and finding your space, you know, I know we've done a lot of work on kind of stepping into the confidence and the power to do that. But I think it's a really important thing to say is that finding your own niche and creating that space for you to stand into and for you to kind of be confident to be yourself to know your worth to give your power and give your expertise and and you know a little bit of your time as well you know acknowledging that you're ready for a board position I think is quite hard and you know it's so encouraging to hear from you and you've done a lot at a young age Ronnie and and I think it's incredible what you've crammed into your career so far I think everyone else would agree like I was um, I've been amazed by you since I've known you for the last year or so and you know I kind of um I feel that the wisdom that you have to give to people is huge and actually recognizing that there is a place on a board for you to do that is is a real symbol of you kind of knowing and acknowledging your own power which I think is awesome and encouraging others to hold their own space and do the same I think is so important so it's probably about time to wrap up I think thank you so much this has been amazing I've really 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 enjoyed it it's been so fun and I feel like I could talk to you I know days but um (laughs) yeah it's so good so good well thank you I've, I've really enjoyed it that's all for this week if you've enjoyed this episode please just share it wherever you can on your own social media and if you found the podcast interesting or useful then do please tell a friend because we are always keen for new listeners if you can find it in your heart to rate and review the podcast on itunes or give us a shout out on your socials then we'd love you very much as it genuinely does help other people to find us We're on Instagram and Facebook at The Skylark Collective and our website is www.skylarkcollective.co.uk. See you next time.